Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program by Josh Douglas. Joshua Douglas is a professor at the University of Kentucky College of Law. Uh, he is joining us on our program to share some information that is part of his new book, Vote for Us, How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the Future of Voting. Now, there's an interesting idea and an interesting topic for a book. First of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Thank you for having me. So many areas to go in discussion, but one of the key ones that I think is a great thing to get us started, and we'll talk about the book as well in the course of this discussion, is talking about the actual number of eligible voters who are participating in this great process of elections. What percent of eligible voters actually voted in the last presidential election? So in 2016, we had nationwide turnout of about 60%. Um, and, of course, this varies by state. So some states may have had higher and some lower, but overall it was about 60% turnout. And I'll add, although you didn't ask it yet, in 2018 the turnout nationwide in the midterms was about 50%. Uh, and that was a record from decades. And people were kind of celebrating, saying this is great civic engagement to have 50% turnout. You know, I, I thought that half the people didn't show up. What are we celebrating? Yeah, it says something about our democracy when uh, we're, we're happy about the fact that half the eligible electorate didn't vote. You know, that's amazing when you stop and think about it from that standpoint. And when you look at this, and, you know, part of your work involves looking at things like this in detail, what's really behind the numbers that we're seeing? You know, I think there's a couple of factors, and it's a complex question to determine, you know, why is turnout so low uh, compared to other countries uh, or just in general? I think there's a, a couple of things we could point to. Um, one are structural barriers to the ballot box. And when I say structural barriers, I mean things that make it just harder to vote or the fact that it's not particularly easy or convenient in many places to participate in our democracy. So whether it's, you know, short polling hours or not very many early voting opportunities, voter ID issues, uh, this, you know, sort of thing, or registration hurdles, um, you know, if you, many states, if you're not registered by 30 days before Election Day, uh, you're simply cut out of the process. So, you know, this package of election rules and then the other thing is voter apathy. You know, many people feel like their vote won't make a difference. Uh, why bother showing up? You know, if you're a Republican in California or a Democrat in Texas, you feel like in the presidential election the outcome is predetermined. We can also point to things like redistricting, bad gerrymandering, uh, campaign finance issues with big money seeming to dictate the outcomes. And people have this sense that, you know, why even bother? But yet, you can look at a case that you're familiar with, 2013 Ben Miller's case. Right, would you tell our audience about that? Yeah. So Ben Miller was 16 years old in 2013, and he voted. Uh, how is this possible? Well, Tacoma Park, Maryland, lowered the voting age in 2013 to 16 for local elections. When I first heard about this reform, I thought it was kind of radical, actually. I didn't know much about it. And I've since become a proponent after learning about all of the various merits that are inherent in lowering the voting age, at least for local elections. So Tacoma Park did it first, uh, and then it spread to places like Hydesville, Maryland, and Greenbelt, Maryland, hopped over the, uh, across the country in Berkeley, California, 
lowered its voting age to 16 for school board elections. And actually, I just saw recently that the Los Angeles school board unanimously voted to have a feasibility study about lowering the voting age to 16 for its school board elections. So this is something that is now starting to spread, and we can get into the details if you want. But, you know, Ben Miller was uh, one of the first people to actually vote in uh, American elections at the age of 16 because his city lowered the voting age. So what do you say when people will say, and I'm sure you've heard this uh, argument, that high school students aren't going to be mature enough to vote? Well, that's a common reaction. And so I've done some research into psychological studies of brain development. And what I learned was that psychologists essentially break cognition into two categories. This is sort of simplified, but they essentially say that there's a difference between what they refer to as hot cognition and cold cognition. And hot cognition are um, sort of rapid decision-making, peer pressure issues, heat of the moment. And psychologists say that brains are not fully developed for proper hot cognition activities until at least age 21 and maybe 24 or 25. Cold cognition, on the other hand, is reasoned decision-making, not heat of the moment, not peer pressure right when the decision is happening. And psychologists say that brains are cognitively developed for cold cognition by age 16. So if we want to peg the voting age to where people are actually mature enough to make the kinds of decisions that are necessary for the election process, actually 16 makes a lot more sense. So if young adults are allowed to cast their first vote when they're 16, are they more likely to vote? Yeah. You know, studies show that one of the most uh, indicative factors of whether someone's going to vote is whether they voted previously. So voting is habit-forming. And studies show also that if you miss the first election for when you're out from when you're eligible, then you're much less likely to become a habitual voter. You know, non-voting is habit-forming as well. And 18 is kind of a strange time to start the voting process because, you know, people are moving away from their homes. They're either entering the workforce or going to school. Uh, they have to, in many places, register ahead of time, then request an absentee ballot, receive it, fill it out properly, sometimes get it witnessed properly, depending on the state, mail it back in in time. There's a lot of hurdles to jump over uh, to vote when you have all these other changes happening in your life. 16, however, makes a lot more sense because you're in the supportive environment of home and school. You know, we know where, where they all are, essentially, so we can get them registered. We can get them better educated in civics in engagement. And so I have a whole chapter about civics engagement and the ways in which we can reform that. I think that's an important part of this. And what's most interesting is that the places that have done this have proven results. So Tacoma Park... In, uh, 16 and 17-year-olds voted about twice the rate of 18 to 24-year-olds in uh, those elections since 2013. Well, what about this idea of actually lowering the voting age officially? I mean, last time it was lowered was, and this is a long time ago, 1972 when we went from 21 to 18. What's it going to take or could it take for us to lower the age again? Yeah, so let me first say that, you know, it was 21, as you noted, for most of our history, but that is almost actually a historical accident. Um, we, When our country was founded, we used essentially British common law that set the voting age at 21, and that comes from medieval practice, um, where 21 was the age in which men were thought to be able to wear a suit of armor, and so therefore were thought to sort of be part of society enough to also vote. And that was, comes from medieval times, that was British common law, and then we adopted that. And as you noted, lowered the voting age uh, in the early 1970s to, uh, to, to 18, uh, based on the Vietnam War and this notion of old enough to fight, old enough to vote. If we wanted to lower the voting age to 16 nationwide, um, a constitutional amendment could make that happen, and there, there actually is a proposal in Congress to do that. Um, Congress could lower the voting age to 16 for federal elections, but honestly, I think the best way to do this is 
kind of this city by city uh, push that is already happening. Uh, you know, we've had campaigns in places like San Francisco, Washington, D.C. City Council has considered lowering the voting age. Um, you know, when we moved it from 21 to 18, it, actually that happened in several states first before the constitutional amendment. Georgia and Kentucky lowered the voting age to 18 well before uh, it happened nationwide. And I think this kind of piecemeal approach in cities is actually the best way because we can prove therefore that it works in some places and then more places are more are likelier to, to, to take the reform as well. Mm. One of the topics that comes up in discussions on the topic of voting, obviously now, and sometimes this is very hotly debated, is this whole discussion about felon disenfranchisement. Where do you mm-hmm. stand on that? Well, I first think about what the history of felon disenfranchisement is, and it really comes from Jim Crow era laws to disenfranchise African Americans. You know, most felon disenfranchisement laws are from the late 1800s and early 1900s, where the country essentially was trying to find a way to cut newly freed slaves and African Americans out of the political process. So it has a racist history, and it also has a racist effect to this day, where you look at felon disenfranchisement rates and it just disproportionately harms minority voters. Um, I also wonder why there's ever been a link between committing a crime and participating in our democracy. If we think that the right to vote is the most fundamental aspect of being a citizen in this country, and yet even when we send people to jail, we don't strip them of their citizenship. Um, so I don't think former felons or returning citizens should be disenfranchised. Um, there's also currently a discussion about whether we should even allow people to vote from prison. You know, Maine and Vermont do that, and does, no one suggests that democracy there has fallen apart because uh, currently incarcerated individuals have the ability to vote. Um, you know, the movement really right now is to at least enfranchise people once they committed their completed their sentences, and I think that's a very good move, and, and I'm, I'm happy to see that movement continue. Can you point to social benefits from that? Well, sure. I mean, you know, so I tell the story in the book. I opened the book with a, a guy named Wes Powell, mm-hmm. who uh, helped to convince the Kentucky legislature to pass an expungement bill to allow some low-level felons to get an expungement of their records. You know, Kentucky is one of the worst states in the country for felons disenfranchisement. It still disenfranchises felons for life. But at least some low-level felons can get an expungement of their records thanks to West Powell essentially telling his story to a Senate Judiciary Committee and changing the minds of some of the legislators. And in terms of social benefits, you know, he himself talked about how even though he completed his sentence and paid his debt back to society, and he, he had stolen a car radio from an auto salvage yard when he was 18. And 25 years later, he said, you know, I've cleaned up my life, and uh, I got a job, I got married, I have five kids. Um, what more do you want me to do to feel like a full member of society? And, you know, he basically said, by being branded a felon for life and not being able to vote, I don't feel like I'm actually part of my democracy. We're talking with uh, Josh Douglas on our program, and uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of this uh, chat, he is a professor at the University of Kentucky College of Law, and he is joining us on our program, talking with us about um, some of the information contained in the book, Vote for Us, How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the Future of Voting. That title obviously gets people's attention. What's the reaction been to it? Well, the vote for us part is interesting because people have noted kind of the double meaning of us and U.S. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, sort of purposeful to note that, you know, this is really about all of us and about all the United States. And it's not a partisan-laden book. You know, some people have said, well, you know, all the reforms you talk about are intended just to help one political party over the other. And my answer is no, this is about helping our democracy um, and, you know, many of these reforms actually are bipartisan. I can point to states, you know, so-called red states that are passing some of these reforms, just like so-called blue states. 
Um, and then you know, the subtitle of how to take back our elections and change the future of voting, I think people see the positive nature of that message. And, you know, this really is a positive book. It's about what's possible. So there's so much doom and gloom out there when it comes to the right to vote and this sense that voter suppression is on the rise and it's hard to participate in our elections. You know, that's true. Uh, in many respects, and we need to fight back against that voter suppression, and we need to fight back against that doom and gloom. But the message here is that we can go beyond that to promote positive voting rights reforms, thanks to these everyday individuals that I profile in the book. Uh, I call them democracy champions, you know, people like uh, Ben Miller, who got to vote for the first time in Tacoma Park, or Wes Powell, who helped to convince the Kentucky legislature. And so really, I hope people see the optimism in the title and in the stories that are in the book about what's possible for our democracy. The difference between voter registration fraud and election fraud, would you talk about that? Yeah. So many people feel like there's a lot of voter fraud in our system because they hear these notions that our voter registration rules are bloated, that they're outdated, that there's lots of people on the rolls who have moved away or who have died. Um, and the simple answer is that voter registration bloat is not the same as, as election fraud. Um, there simply is not a lot of election fraud in our system. And where there is, we find it. You know, you can point to the North Carolina example from 2018 in the congressional election there. Um, simply having outdated voter rolls doesn't mean that we have lots of people voting fraudulently. And, you know, this makes sense because people do move, people do die, and, you know, it's a work to update the registration rolls. But simply the fact of having registration rolls that are not 100% accurate in no way means that these people are actually voting fraudulently as well. And I think our conversation really does need to separate the two. Um, you know, and even if people are, are found to engage in, you know, filling out voter registration forms fraudulently, uh, that has nothing to do with whether these people are also engaged in actually trying to change election outcomes. Well, do we have any real reason to fear this idea of trying to make it easier for people to vote? I mean, this is talked about an awful lot of, you know, making things easier, using technology, things like that. Well, the only things we have to fear in terms of uh, election fraud or security are um, systematic attempts to change results, you know, things like uh, security of election machines itself, uh, foreign interference with our elections. You know, those sorts of things um, it could have a difference if they, if they occur because they're on large scale. And I contrast this with, for example, the common justification for strict photo identification laws. You know, where people say, well, you know, you need to be able to prove your identity before you vote because uh, otherwise you might have all these fraudulent voters showing up and pretending to be someone they're not. Um, and I look at the studies, you know, the only way to, that only thing, rather, that voter ID laws prevent is in-person impersonation, someone showing up to the polls and pretending they're someone they're not. And this just doesn't happen very much at all. And it'd be a really dumb way to throw an election. Because if you're trying to change election outcomes by getting a bunch of people to show up at the polls, well, you need a lot of people involved in the conspiracy to make sure you can make a difference. And the more people you involve, the more people or the more likely you are to be caught. So, you know, if people are trying to throw an election through in-person impersonation, it's just not a very smart way to do it. Um, you know, we do need to be vigilant about the security of our elections, but that has to go with, you know, making sure our poll workers are being honest, making sure we're rooting out vote buying, um, absentee balloting. We've had issues there sometimes, um, but not on making it easier to vote in general. This idea of trying to make voting as easy as possible and, you know, to make it attractive you know, everything from people have talked about the idea of being able to vote online. Uh, some people talk about trying to advocate the idea of making this as easy as food shopping. Is that realistic? Yeah, well, the online part, maybe not yet. Um, you know, there are some places that are experimenting with blockchain as a technological basis. 
for online voting, and actually some counties in West Virginia did use an app uh, that involved blockchain for some overseas voters, and apparently it worked pretty well. But I'm not sure that the technology is there just yet for online voting through blockchain or some other means. But making voting as easy as food shopping, you know, actually is possible, and, and that gets the title of one of the chapters in one of the reforms. Uh, that is known as vote centers. So this comes from Colorado, and the idea was started by a guy named Scott Doyle, a Republican engineer in Larimer County, Colorado, who joined the county clerk's office there late in his career. And he heard about some voters in 2000, during the presidential election in 2000, who were turned away from their polls, they had gone to what ended up being the wrong polling place, the wrong precinct, towards the end of the day and were turned away and then went to what their correct polling place was, but they were too late. Uh, the polls had closed, and so they were disenfranchised because of, they made the mistake of going to the wrong place. And so Scott Doyle went home one night and sort of you know, thought about, well, how, how do we vote and does this really make sense? And again, he's kind of an engineer, so he brought his engineering expertise to the problem and sketched out models of voting and came up with a, a system known as vote centers, where essentially instead of having to go to a home-based precinct, you know, the polling place closest to your house, you can go to any vote center in the county and vote. And you check in at the vote center there, and it, uh, they're all electronically linked. So once you check into one, you can't go to the others. Uh, and it prints out the ballot for your home address. Um, but this is kind of like food shopping in that, you know, as he put it, I can go to a supermarket anywhere I find one and get basically the same thing. Why can't voting be the same way? Why are we tied to our home-based precinct? Um, and instead, you know, why can't I just go to the, the closest vote center to my uh, work or to my uh, school or if I'm out doing errands or whatever? So we got this implemented in Larimer County, and the voters loved it. Turnout went up. It was actually cheaper because they needed fewer polling stations and, and fewer poll workers. Um, and uh, this has now spread to a handful of other places, including all Colorado, which actually uses a dual system. They use uh, universal vote by mail, where every voter is mailed about and vote centers. Places in uh, New Mexico. Houston just announced it's going to move the vote center model uh, Kansas said that it will allow its counties to use vote centers. Indiana, so a bunch of places use this now to great success. Mm. What about the impact of the voting by mail? Yeah, so you know this started in Oregon initially, uh, thanks to the innovative thinking of a guy there named Phil Kiesling. Uh, and interestingly, Phil, who, when he was in the Oregon legislature, was opposed to universal vote by mail, also known as vote at home, because he had this notion of the civic-minded nature of joining your neighbors uh, to feel the crunch of the leaves in the autumn as you walk to your polling place. But as he put it, you know, I, I was mistaking the essence of voting with, or the, the practice of voting with its essence, which is participation. And um, universal vote by mail or vote at home increases participation because it makes it so much easier for people to participate from the comforts of their home. So uh, the way it works is that the state automatic or the county automatically mails you your ballot about two or three weeks before Election Day. So you can sit at home and research the issues in candidates. This leads to a more informed, educated electorate. And then drop off your ballot at a secure drop box or mail it in through the mail. Um, it began in a few counties in Oregon first, and then it spread statewide. Now uh, it's the reality for all elections in Washington, as well as Colorado, which I noted uses kind of this dual system where everyone receives a ballot, and then, but if you don't, for whatever reason, return it, you can go to any vote center on election day. Um, almost all of Utah uses universal vote by mail, all but one county. Uh, Hawaii just passed a law to allow universal vote by mail. But here's the most important part. Turnout in these states is much higher than in states that use the traditional system of you know, in-person polling places uh, with you know, the ability to request an absentee ballot uh, some states require you still to have an excuse. Um, and the studies show that turnout is just much higher in universal vote-by-mail states as compared to the other states. 
More with you, Josh, as we continue. We're talking with Josh Douglas. He's a professor at the University of Kentucky College of Law. His book is entitled Vote for Us, How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the Future of Voting. He's talking with us on our program on The Fan this Sunday morning. The Electoral College, Josh, um, is this really needed? No. Um, You know, maybe it once was, uh, or we could at least debate that in terms of Uh, the different nature of our country. But today we have, you know, nationwide campaigns, uh, nationwide communication in a much different society. Um, And this isn't about election results. It's about democracy, and it's about increasing participation. You know, as I said, there are people in some states who just don't feel like it even matters whether they vote in their state's presidential election because the outcome seems preordained. And the candidates just focus on, you know, the six to eight swing states, uh, to the exclusion of the rest of the country. Um, now, this is a, a difficult thing to change because it's in the Constitution, so you need a constitutional amendment or a workaround, and there's currently a, a, a system in, that is being trying to be adopted called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, where essentially states agree to award their electoral votes not to, not to whoever wins their state, but to whoever wins the national popular vote. And it's passed in about a dozen states. Um, it doesn't go into effect, however, until enough states have passed it to equal 270, which is the number of electoral college votes that are needed to win. Um, I think there's also some serious constitutional questions if it ever does pass enough states. I mean, it is basically a workaround to the Constitution. So, you know, it's a difficult uh, problem, but unfortunately it's one that is kind of embedded within our current Constitution. Other countries, in some cases, get higher voter participation rates than we do here. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with us? Yeah, what's, um, what's wrong with that picture, in other words? Well, well, you know, we consider ourselves an advanced democracy, the envy of the world, um, and yet we fall pretty low on the ranking scale when it comes to our voter participation. Um, you know, some countries have mandatory voting where it's a, essentially a requirement, and they have a turnout of 90, 95 percent. Um, Australia does this, and, and they have a pretty educated electorate. Um, I'm not suggesting that we adopt mandatory voting here, but I do think that if we adopt all of the reforms I talk about, we could achieve something close to, you know, very high turnout. In the book, I say, let's not strive for, you know, 90% turnout, which seems crazy given our current numbers. But, you know, why not have a goal like that? And then, you know, if we only reach 77 or 75%, well, that's pretty darn good. Uh, it's a pretty good improvement. Um, but, you know, what's wrong is, again, we make it not easy to vote in many places. Uh, there's a lot of voter apathy. Um, and uh, the combination of those leads to, in my view, a a less engaged electorate than we should have for a democracy that should be the envy of the world. Mm. Now, one of the things that's interesting at the end of your book, you actually put forth an idea of Vote for Us, the musical, and invite the creator of Hamilton to collaborate with you. Where did you get that idea? Well, I'm a Hamilton junkie, um, and uh, so I'm a little bit of a, addicted to the musical. You know, it's done such great things to engage the citizenry in our history, um, particularly young people. You know, you see these high school students doing projects involving Hamilton. There's such a, been a big revival. Um, and the book is really about engaging the electorate. As I mentioned, I have a whole chapter on civics education, and, you know, it was a little bit tongue-in-cheek, you know, if, if Lynn is listening and, and uh, would be interested in collaborating. I mean, I think that would be great. But really the underlying message here, and I think this hopefully goes to the whole message of the book, is that it's everyday Americans who are doing this great work already to implement many of these changes for their either local or state elections. And their stories are so compelling. Um, you know, I interviewed over 50 people for this book these everyday Americans that I call democracy champions, and I was so inspired by them. Every time I got off an interview, I rushed to my computer to keep writing to try to tell their stories. And, you know, Hamilton the Musical is really a story, a really compelling story about these amazing 
flawed but incredible everyday Americans who started a revolution and created our country. And today's democracy champions, I think, are linked to the democracy champions of Hamilton's time through advocacy involving stories and storytelling. And so I think the stories in the book are actually something that would be good fodder for a musical um, because of the inspiring nature of them. Final question for you. Um, some people might have thought I might ask, ask this early on in the discussion. For those who read this book, what are you hoping they take away from it? Well, I hope they're inspired. I hope they understand what is possible for our democracy. You know, too much of our discussion as we began, Bob, is about doom and gloom. And people seem to kind of throw up their hands and, and you know, feel like they won't be able to change anything. Uh, someone noted a term to me recently called slacktivism, where, you know, you, you might say rah-rah or, you know, we don't like this, but, you know, really do anything to make actual change. And so I hope people reading the book feel that there is some optimism about what change is possible. Um, but beyond the hope, beyond the inspiration, I also want people to actually take action. And that's why I included a fairly lengthy appendix that has uh, a list of all 50 states and organizations in each one. There's about three or four organizations for every state that are working on issues of democracy reform. So I hope people read the book, but then also flip to the back and wherever they are and find an organization and contact and say, okay, I can help. I can also be a democracy champion. I can spend an hour a week making our elections process easier, more convenient, more inclusive, more democratic, because that, I think, is what's going to ultimately ultimately, uh, help to improve our system. Most interesting discussion with Josh Douglas. He's a professor at the University of Kentucky College of Law and the author of Vote for Us, How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the Future of Voting. Thank you very much for joining us. Certainly the best with your work. Thanks, Bob. This was fun. Joined by uh, Rich Castle on our program. Rich is a um, native New Yorker, senior vice president for Gladstone, uh, Neendross and Associates, and uh, E2 New York uh, chapter director. Uh, he is talking with us on our program. Um, we're going to get into a couple of interesting areas of discussion because we're going to talk about the topic of clean energy and employment. Now, those are interesting areas of discussion. Uh, first of all, Rich, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Good morning. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Bob. I guess uh, let's do a little bit of uh, background. First of all, um, would you tell us a little bit about uh, the uh, firm that I mentioned? Sure. So Environmental Entrepreneurs, or E2 for short, is a national organization of business leaders who work to advance policies that will be good for the environment and good for the economy. We're looking for win-wins. And... Uh, you know, renewable power, which I'm sure which we'll talk about, is really exactly that kind of win-win that we look for and that we look to advance in New York. Uh, something uh, programs that are going to reduce emissions and reduce costs for consumers and businesses. Uh, e two is a national organization, but we have chapters, and I co-direct the the New York chapter. And your listeners can learn more at e two dot org, uh, where there's a lot of information about the work we do. When we talk about that idea of renewable power and trying to advance this in New York, how receptive an environment do you find? Well, New York is rapidly becoming a real leader in the nation and, frankly, around the world on clean energy and renewable power. Governor Cuomo announced the Clean Energy Standard, which firmly puts New York on the path to cleaner renewable energy. And by ener renewable energy, I mean solar, wind, hydropower, zero-emission energy sources. By 2030, under this program, at least half of all of the energy we use in New York State will be renewable. Uh, we're going to see dramatic increases in solar and wind, and we're going to see dramatic increases in the jobs that are associated with the transition away from fossil fuels over towards clean energy. When you say dramatic, I guess I always want to know, can we quantify that? Well, we can, actually. Uh, E2 released a report with a number of other organizations this summer that found that New York already has 85,000 clean energy jobs. Uh, these are jobs in every county in the state, although more than 50,000 of them are here in New York City, where I live and work. Um, 
And when we say clean energy jobs, we mean everything from companies that are building solar panels in Buffalo or wind farms in Ithaca to firms that are retrofitting apartment buildings in the city from uh, from burning dirty high sulfur heating oil in the winter to cleaner, more efficient natural gas. Uh, companies that are working in every town, every county in the state to retrofit homes and offices with energy-efficient lighting and windows and air conditioning and other appliances. So we're talking about a lot of different types of jobs. And we're going to see growth because as we transition over, right now we're just under a quarter renewable power. Most of that is hydropower. As we transition towards uh, at least half of it and, uh, and much more solar and wind and energy efficiency in our homes and offices, we're going to see those jobs take off. 85,000 is the number today. That's roughly comparable to the construction industry in New York. Uh, we're going to see that go up dramatically. How will that impact things like, um, you know, areas like transportation? Because, you know, you think of the whole uh, movement toward electric vehicles and the like. Well, I think we're going to see big changes in uh, the types of cars we drive, and we're also going to see big changes in how we drive. Um, you know, we already have uh, hybrids, of course. We're starting to see more and more plug-in hybrid cars, cars that can run on gasoline or electric power, and you can plug them in at night. If you, uh, and we're starting to see more and more electric vehicles, and those range from battery electric cars fully electric on battery, to even the start of some cars that run on hydrogen fuel cells. Uh, Toyota um, is going to start soon selling a car like that um, in New York. So, you know, we're really starting to see a change in the technologies. Um, and even for just the plain old-fashioned gasoline car, the fuel economy of that car will double by 2025 under a program that was adopted by the Obama administration a couple of years ago. So we're really going to see a big change, very exciting, and I think it'll have, it'll have environmental uh, benefits, but it'll also have economic benefits because we won't be paying so much for gasoline anymore. And is this something which we you know, are going to really be able to see and feel the state touting as it markets itself? Because, you know, New York State does... Uh, an aggressive job also of trying to market to uh, businesses and obviously to individuals about relocating here. Right. I, I think that the combination of clean, renewable electricity and um, a much more efficient transportation system here uh, is a good combination for businesses that are looking for, for, for places to locate, especially here in the city. You know, the, New York City released a report last month that found that by uh, 2050, 80% of the trips that people take, getting to work, delivering packages, are going to be by some uh, clean source. You know, we're seeing it. We already have the best transit system in the country, but we're going to see more and more shared vehicles like the Ubers, and we're going to see all sorts of ideas that are just starting to come out in ways that we can get around cleaner, and then you add in replacing coal and natural gas, old natural gas plants with the newest, most efficient gas plants, solar, wind, hydro. Uh, the electricity portfolio is going to be safe. It's going to be cost-effective. It's going to be reliable. Um, and it's going to be good for business. Rich, thank you very much for joining us and sharing these insights. This is a situation we're obviously going to be watching because – it's one that's going to affect and hopefully benefit all of us. Well, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to speak with you and your listeners today. I'm Bob Salter. We're joined by Ashley Papa. Ashley is a Fox News magazine contributor, a relationship reporter. She covers it all, sex, love, dating, marriage, and more. And we're going to get into some interesting areas of discussion. Nice to have you join us on our program, first of all, Ashley. Thank you so much. In beginning this discussion, here's an area that affects a lot of people who are listening to our discussion right now. The idea of texting and the habits that they have while texting. Can that affect one's love life and affect it in a negative fashion? Yes, definitely. Um, somebody's texting 
habits can be a real turnoff to some others. Uh, there's several ways that it can. For instance, if you're a person who loves to text and the person that you're in a relationship with or just starting to date hates texting, then right off the bat, you're turning them off. And other things that turn people off could be their, their style, whether they write really short and it looks like they're not interested, or if they write really long and it's almost like you have to scroll through their text to see to get what they're saying. And those kind of text messages you should be saving for a real person-to-person conversation or um, over the phone. So sometimes people just get overwhelmed by the length of the text and uh, what is said on the text message. What about, because this is one of the things that drives me crazy with Mm -hmm. texts, are the amount of grammar mistakes (laughs) that that Mm -hmm. there are in in typical texts, you know, whether it's misspellings or uh, just the wrong use of words. Is that Mm -hmm. something that rubs people the wrong way? Yeah, it's it's definitely um, a turnoff to many. There was a study done by Match.com recently that said... um, Men and women, it revealed men and women's top texting turnoffs, and one of them was bad grammar. And people, it just, people can get lazy on text and they don't care or they don't care about the difference between there and there. But to somebody who you're texting, it could be, it can make you look dumb to that person if texting is, or if grammar is a big deal for them. Uh, for me, it would be a big deal because I'm a writer. So if somebody's using improper, um, language, then I would, you know, it'd be a turnoff for me, or it's almost, it's laziness as well if they're shortening words, and yeah, that's another another reason why um, you could be sabotaging your love life. How about the one word answer people? Yeah, well, that's very frustrating to many as well if they just respond with a K or hey. A lot of, a lot of times those have they can have hidden meanings. Or you think they have hitting meanings, so it drives you crazy trying to think, like, why are they only texting me one word? Are they mad at me? What do they mean by this? It's very it's vague. But on the other hand, it could be just because the person doesn't like to text long responses. You never really know what you're getting from a text message. And, of course, the classic when somebody texts you and it's all caps. Right, because... Usually caps indicate that they're yelling at you, so that's another huge turnoff. So you don't want to have your caps on. Sometimes, you know, phones are are finicky. The caps locks, and you don't know how to turn it off, and you end up texting an all-caps message. So another, just again, another reason why people are turned off by text messaging styles. What about the idea of getting a text from somebody that, you know, you're dating while you're at work? Yeah, that can um, be uh, annoying to some. I know that Match also said that men don't like it when they're texted from somebody they're dating at work. Women, on the other hand, may enjoy it. Some people like to get those random texts during the day because then it shows, oh, they're thinking about me. And then some just don't like it. So you don't really know. You have to have that conversation with the person you're dating. Should I text you during the day or do you not like it? If, you don't, if the person doesn't get a response right away during the day, then the person who sent the text message may think that they're being ignored when the other person could just be extremely busy. Then later in the day, there could be some animosity because there wasn't a, a quick response with the text message and it just creates just a lot of uh, unnecessary angst among a couple. Mm. And then we get into that really tricky area where, you know, you're texting somebody that you used to be in a relationship with. How big, right. a, no- how big a no-no is that? It's a huge no-no because the relationship ended, so therefore you shouldn't be reaching out to one another. But it's so easy and it's so tempting to just send that hey text to see if they'll respond. You know, back in the day when we didn't have texting, you didn't, you didn't really sell phones. Well, before texting came out, you couldn't reach out to somebody that easily. And now it just takes a lot more willpower and strength to not reach out to somebody you shouldn't be texting. Mm. Mm. And then if you get one of those texts from an ex, mm-hmm. should you just ignore it? You know, it, it's, 
your call. You can you can ignore it if you don't feel the need to communicate with this person, or you respond or you call them and tell them not to text you, or or you uh, have a conversation in person. You know, the text should be used to set up set up a meeting if you need to talk to somebody, not do it over text. So it's really up to the the person and um, if they want to respond or not. And that's another another issue with texting. It gives it's a power play. Somebody can just keep ignoring the person and the other person who sent the text, it, I mean, it just drives them crazy because they're not getting a response. And then all these thoughts come into their head. The idea in a dating situation of when should somebody call versus when they should text? Yeah, um, well, when a text message is more of a, gets to be more of a conversation, if it's going on for hours, or you have to actually scroll through a message to read what they're saying, <laughs> that's when it should be um, on the phone or in person. The text messages should be used for little things to confirm a date, just to say hi, or just to maybe message whatever reason you're, you're, you feel like saying hi or anything. But it shouldn't be used for anything serious or anything too in-depth. What about what about sending pictures? Well, pictures are fine depending on you know what the couple likes. If they just want to send a picture of what they're doing, that's fine. Um, make sure that it's appropriate that both people feel it's you know pictures are appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, if one person doesn't want like a you know a, a sextic picture, then you shouldn't automatically think that everyone likes to get those kind of pictures because some people don't. Mm. We're talking with the Ashley Papa on our program. She's a Fox News magazine contributor, a relationship reporter. She covers it all. By the way, it sounds like you have a lot of fun with what you do. I do. Um, I I try and, uh, because I have a journalism background, I like to do interviews. I like to interview people just like me who are, are in the real world dating. I like to interview people who are more, um, who are older and married and maybe experts in their field, like therapists or psychologists, and get their take on stuff as well. And I like to follow all the dating trends. Um, there's all the new apps that are coming out. Um, I like to look at new studies that come out as well and just try to keep up with the times when it comes to dating. So there's just people like reading about that stuff. What about, I like to make it entertaining. What about those new dating apps, Ashley? Well, you know what I've been finding recently is um, – so there's a lot out there. Um, I believe that there's over 2,000 in the world. The last time I had my research department uh, find the exact number for me, that's a lot. And they're so, there's, I mean, they're pretty much for any kind of interest as, as well. You can, you can find a dating website for people that are just into motorcycles. You can find online dating websites for specific races and. Um, ethnicities, and but one thing I've noticed recently with some of these up-and-coming apps is a lot of them seem to focus more on getting a conversation started or meeting in person first. There's this new app called Willow that's it's not a dating app, but because it because it brands itself as a conversation app, like you get start getting talking about a specific topic, and then a date usually can come out of it, and that's the bonus. And then another app that's out there is it's all about trying to find a right bar or restaurant that has the scene that you want. People check in, and it shows you on the app who is at this bar. So you can kind of pinpoint a bar depending on who is there, who you want to meet, and interest. So it actually gets you out away from the computer or your phone to meet people in person. So it's uh, kind of trying to get the, these new apps by these younger guys actually are more about the in-person and conversation, which I find interesting. Imagine that trend actually happening. Huh? I know. <laughs> you actually meet people in person. Huh? I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if it'll do well. It seems like people like to hide that, you know, <laughs> passive aggressiveness, <laughs> hiding behind their phone. So. What about the world of the people who are divorced, whether it's recently divorced or they've been divorced for some time and they're they're getting back into, or they are actively in the dating mm-hmm. world. Well, there's uh, 
there's definitely online dating websites for that as well. And a lot of people um, who are newly divorced and back out on the scene seem to go that route because, you know, maybe going out in public or meet at bars is something um, kind of foreign to them if they've been married for so long. So a lot of the experts would advise starting out um, maybe seeing a matchmaker or going to an online dating site. And there's, you know, there's specific uh, sites for that, whether you're um, just divorced or you're divorced and you have kids. There's like single parent meet, some one of them that's popular. So all, all tons of options for you. Ashley, what about, mm-hmm. I guess we'll shift in discussion into another area that okay. you've looked at, which is the idea for, uh, you know, a lot of us have pets, um, whether mm-hmm. it's in a dog or cat or you have both uh, or you have multiples of uh, either. What mm-hmm. does that say about that person when it comes to their approach to romance? Well, there's uh, specific personality traits that match with whether you are a cat or a dog lover. And there was a recent study that showed uh, just how... Um, how that is. It was the University of Texas and found that dog people are 15% more extroverted and 13% more agreeable than cat people. Cat people are more neurotic, but they're more open. So dog lovers tend to be more of the tender. They're maybe a little bit more needy. They're more playful, whereas a cat lover might be a little bit more independent, more likely to make the decisions in the relationship, and they only like to do things um, on their time when they say so. And the dog, the dog people are a little bit more, um, like I said, needy because a dog needs a lot more attention than a cat does. It kind of can be said for a dog and cat lovers. So that's what um, the experts say. And when it comes to Sex as well, they say that the cat lovers are a little bit more adventurous. And then they say that for people who have multiple of a pet, that shows that they're more interested in their pets than they are in the relationship. So you might be a little bit, um, you know, watch out for somebody like that. But that doesn't mean that you can't try and date them, of course. It could be, you know, maybe rescuing dogs, which is a good thing. They're more interested in their pets than in the relationship if they have multiples. Hmm. Right. Yeah. Wow. It's just a lot. It's a lot to take care of. But maybe they just are that. Um, you know, they just like taking care of people and animals. So, yeah. Fun uh, approach that you take with your work, Ashley Papa, mm-hmm. who is a Fox News Magazine contributor, relationship reporter. She has a website at Ashley Papa. That's all as one word. dot com. Thanks so much for uh, sharing a few things with us in uh, our discussion here on our program. Uh, Nice to have you uh, join us on our program. Certainly good luck with your work. Thank you so much. It was so much fun. Well, Anne Liguri is going to continue the fun after our 7 this morning. Rick Wolf has the Sports Edge program along at 8 o'clock, and Mike Francesa is by at 9 o'clock. We will see you bright and early at 6 next Sunday morning. You're on the fan. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates – Price and coverage match limited by state law.